Good morning. My name is John Norris. I'm one of the pastors here. And we have an amazing text to talk about this morning. So if you have a Bible, open to Isaiah 53. The text is in your worship bulletin. But before we begin, let's pray. Father, would you be our helper now so that we can see what's in this text? We want to know this one, this man of sorrows. And we want what he did to count for us. Help us to see and fill us with joy when we see. We ask that in the name of the man of sorrows. Amen. Man of Sorrows. Would you want that for a nickname? Is that how you want to be known? A man of sorrows, a woman of sorrows. Would you choose that for your nickname? Jesus did. And it's the best thing that ever happened to this sad world. If you've ever been broken, wrecked, if you've ever felt grief deep down in your soul, you know the kind of person you want with you in that moment is someone who can empathize. You don't want Job's friends. You want someone who knows. You don't, some, you don't want someone to tell you a joke when your heart is breaking. You want someone who's known suffering to sit with you. But you also, in your grief, want someone to be with you who's known suffering and hasn't been conquered by it. We all know people who have suffered and they become cynics. They're sarcastic about goodness, about life. Anything good that comes their way is just a joke because we all know in the end we're going to suffer. Or... There are people who have been through suffering and they just live their lives in anxiety. They don't know what's coming around the corner and they're fearful. Or they just become complainers, self-absorbed. They can't see past their own pain. Others just shut down. When they suffer, they don't want to deal with any more pain, so they won't open themselves up to it. We all know people like that. But you want a friend in your suffering who knows what it's like and knows how to live in the middle of it. How about a God who knows? You need this chapter. You need Isaiah 53. You need to know you have a friend who suffered. Your God has suffered more than any man not simply to empathize with you in your sorrow, but as we're about to see in Isaiah 53, in order to redeem you from it. So who is this? Who is this servant, this man of sorrows that Isaiah is writing about? It's Jesus. Luke Humphrey introduced us to the prophet Isaiah last week as we went through Isaiah 40. 
Isaiah is a prophet from the Old Testament. He was in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he prophesied from around 740 BC, that's 740 years before Christ, to about 700 years before Christ. 700 years before Jesus came, this chapter was written. In our New Testament, Paul, John, Matthew, Luke, Philip, and Peter all say, Isaiah 53, we know him. That's Jesus. So when you read it, it's amazing. It almost sounds like it's from the New Testament, doesn't it? Um, The theology of what Jesus did on the cross is so specific. It almost sounds like the Apostle Paul wrote it, doesn't it? Which is why Isaiah has sometimes been called the fifth gospel, but it was written 700 years before Jesus came to earth. So to give you some perspective on how long 700 years is, 700 years ago from now, the gun had not been invented. The cannon had not been invented. Knitting had been invented. The printing press was not yet invented. 700 years ago, there were still 300 more years until the flushable toilet would be invented. The Reformation hadn't happened, and Ibn Battuta was still alive. And 700 years ago, he could not have imagined that he would someday have his very own shopping mall in Jebel Ali. (laughs) So for Isaiah to have written this 700 years before it happened means that for whatever else the crucifixion is, it is not an accident. Everything about the life and death of Jesus was purposeful, including what he looked like and what people thought of him. Look at verses one through three. Verse one, who has believed what he has heard from us? That means What I'm about to tell you is unbelievable. And to whom has the arm, that means the strength of the Lord, been revealed? For he, Jesus, grew up before the Lord like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. That means like a a plant, a root coming out of dry ground. This is unexpected. This didn't seem like the time was right. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Which means every time you've ever seen Jesus in a movie, they get this wrong because he wasn't attractive. But no director wants to cast an unattractive actor to play the role of Jesus, right? He was not attractive, which means people didn't come to Jesus because of the way he looked. And that's because he and the Father wanted it that way. Would you choose that for yourself? Verse three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. No one saw him for who he was. We esteemed him not means 
We didn't think rightly about him. He didn't seem honorable. He just looked like an average man. He was rejected by the majority of the people of Israel, and he was overall despised. This text says, like the kind of person you don't even want to look at. Is there anybody in this room that feels like that? You have company. Except Jesus made himself that way. The man of sorrows. Merry Christmas. We don't just have company. We have a Savior, and he has a plan. So there are just two truths that I want to point out and I want us to look at from the rest of our time together in this chapter. Two truths from Isaiah 53. Here's the first. Jesus came as a sacrifice to suffer for sins. Jesus came as a sacrifice to suffer for sins. When you look at baby Jesus in the manger, you're looking at some amazing things. You're looking at God joined to humanity. You're looking at the joy of angels, the hope of nations. But Isaiah 53 says you are also looking at a human to be sacrificed. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted means to us, it looked like God hated him for who he was or for what he had done. That's what it looked like. But he was bearing our grief. He was carrying our sorrows, not his own. That's what sacrifices do. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Now look down to verse 7 to see the same point. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Jesus is like a lamb to the slaughter. He is a sacrifice. That's what he is. He is a sacrifice for sins. He bore our griefs. He bore our sins, our sorrows, our shame, our iniquity. And he died for them. Look at one more at the end of verse 12. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He carries on himself the sins of many people. Now, in the Old Testament, you could transfer your sins to an animal by taking your bull or your goat or your lamb to the temple, putting your hand on its head, and cutting its throat. 
And once a year, the high priest would take two goats and he would put his hand on one of them and he would cut its throat to represent this goat receiving what the people deserved. And then he would take both his hands and put it on the head of the other goat and he would confess the sins of the people of Israel over this goat's head so that this animal would bear the sins of the people. And then he would send it away into the wilderness, away from the people and out of God's presence. Becoming a Christian is putting your hand on Jesus' head and confessing your sins before a holy God and transferring your wickedness to him. You do that by faith now. You don't perform a ritual. You just believe that God will take your wickedness and sin and transfer it to the head of Jesus, and you'll be saved. But there's a difference between what happened in the Old Testament and what Jesus does. In the Old Testament, the animal had no choice in the matter. You paid for it, you walked it to the temple, you put your hand on its head, and you cut its throat. But Jesus takes our hands and places them on his head. He told Isaiah what to write because he knew what he was going to do 700 years later. Now, I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine this. What if every time you read in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, every time you read about Jesus healing someone's sickness, what if he actually transferred their sickness to himself? So if there's someone who's suffering from leprosy and he heals them, they're healed, and Jesus takes their leprosy. What if that's the way it worked? By the end of his life, he would have been leprous, paralyzed, blind, unable to speak, unable to hear, and swollen with dropsy. Would that make the healings he performed seem more compassionate? It absolutely would. Instead of just making their sickness, poof, vanish into thin air, he takes it. Now, what if I told you that every time in the New Testament that Jesus forgives someone's sins, that's precisely what he's doing. He's not just making the sins vanish into thin air. He's sending them ahead to his crucifixion where he will put them on like a robe and be nailed to the cross for them. He knew what he was doing. Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So on the cross, out of the anguish of his soul, he's going to see something. By his knowledge 
Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is saying that even in his anguish, Jesus knows what's going on. He knows exactly what his death is doing. He knows he is being offered as a sacrifice. And he knows that what he's doing is going to make many people to be accounted righteous. He's going to take his righteousness and he's going to make it count for you. And he's going to take your unrighteousness and be punished for it. That's called substitution. And that's the reason Jesus went through with his own sacrificial death. Do you see in verse 11, it points out that he is the righteous one. It's clear. We're like sheep. We've gone astray. He's the righteous one. And he makes many to be accounted righteous. There's a book called The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain. And it's a novel, it's a made-up story about a young prince named Edward and a pauper, that just means a really poor person, named Tom. And one day, Prince Edward runs into this poor, poor boy named Tom, and they realize that they're identical. They look exactly the same. And so they decide they're going to switch places for a while. So they swap clothes. Tom takes off his dirty, smelly, torn clothes and hands them to Prince Edward. Edward takes off his rich, fragrant, soft palace clothing and gives them to Tom. They wear the other's clothes, and Tom gets treated like Prince Edward. And Prince Edward gets abused and treated like Tom because he looks like him. They each put on clothing that doesn't belong to them and they get treated like the other should. That's a picture of what happens when you trust in Christ and are accounted righteous with a righteousness that is not your own. At Christmas, Jesus became a human He made himself look like you. He made himself like you, but perfect. And then he took your sinful, wretched, filthy clothing and gave you his royal robes of righteousness. Because he wears your shame, he gets treated like you should. He's executed. And because you wear his righteousness, you get everything. That's what it means to be accounted righteous in this text through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now look at what it does. Verse 12, God says, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. I think this means that the many whom he died for share his portion. We get what he deserves. 
and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Usually that word for strong means like a strong army, strong in number. It means numerous. He's going to share his spoil, what he earned, what he deserved with the numerous, you and me. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We get his righteousness counted to us and all the blessings that go with it. What a sacrifice. What a sacrifice. Here's the second truth we need to look at from this text. Here's the second truth. This sacrifice is given to God by God. This sacrifice is given to God by God. A sacrifice is something you give to God. It's a gift to God. Don't pass over this too quickly. Jesus on the cross wasn't to you. It was to God. Jesus on the cross wasn't a gift to Satan. He was to God. Jesus was offered up on the cross to God. He satisfied God's demand that sin be punished. Look at verse 10 again. It says, his soul makes an offering for guilt. Your guilt, my guilt, is what God must be offered for. We're guilty. Our unrighteousness is against him. We owe him. Sin, though it often hurts other people, isn't evil because it hurts other people. It's evil because it treats God's infinite value as though it were nothing. That's the definition of evil. No matter who it hurts, which means your cheating on your wife is against God. Your stealing from work is against God. Your anger at your parents is against God alongside every other sin of thought and heart that nobody else ever sees. We owe a debt to him. If God's to deal righteously with us, and he will, he is righteous, our sin must be paid, and we will be destroyed for it unless our debt towards him gets paid. And like we've seen, it is paid. It's paid by Jesus. But this text says more, doesn't it? God the Father is also the one who put Jesus forward to be our sacrifice, and he is the one who crushed him. There are two ways to answer the question, who killed Jesus? You could say the Jews, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Romans, but that doesn't go deep enough. 
It's not as though Jesus is doing his ministry. He's going around healing and teaching. The Jews get upset. They crucify him. And God says, hey, I could use that. That will work. No. Listen to what the early church understood in Acts chapter 4. Jesus has been resurrected, and this is what they're praying to God. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God himself paid our debt. God paid it. About 11 Christmases ago, on Christmas Eve, I was driving around Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States, in my old, beat-up, yellow Ford pickup truck. And I was loving life, listening to music. I wasn't paying attention. I didn't see the lights start to flash in front of me until it was too late. And I slammed into the trunk, or boot, of a Bentley. Not a Hyundai. Which means no offense to Hyundai owners. It doesn't matter if you have the nicest Hyundai in the whole world. I would rather hit you (laughs) than the Bentley. So the driver of the Bentley pulls forward and turns into a parking lot that was nearby where I ran into him. And I followed him in there with some difficulty because my front bumper, my fender, had bent down into my tires. I parked the car. He gets out of his car. I grab my insurance papers. I get out. I walk over to him, and I just hand him the papers. (laughs) He looks at them. He looks at me. He hands them back and says, Merry Christmas. And gets in his car and drives away. He was deciding to pay for the damage I caused. I was at fault. And he paid for the damage I caused his Bentley. God has paid for the damage we caused. That's called grace. He has paid for the crimes we have committed against him. And he did it in the sacrifice of his son. That's exactly what Isaiah 53 is telling us that he is going to do 700 years before he does it. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God the Father crushed Jesus. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We owe God a debt that we can never pay back. And he won't make it disappear like a magic trick. He's righteous. Our debt is real. 
Instead, he pays it. And he pays it in full. There is nothing else to pay. He gives his most prized possession. He gives his beloved son the radiance of his glory, his very heart, and he pulls the knife. Has anyone ever told you that before? God the Father killed the Son. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. He has crushed him. He has put him to grief. Listen to the Apostle Paul describing what God has done in Romans 3. For all have sinned, that's you and me, and fall short of the glory of God and are accounted righteous by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which just means a wrath-bearing, an anger-carrying sacrifice to be received by faith, which means that can happen in your seat. You don't do anything but believe. This was to show God's righteousness. If you want to look at how righteous, how glorious, how holy, how awesome God is, you can look to the stars, but that's not the best place to look. If you want to see the depths and the heights of God's righteousness and greatness and glory, look at this. God killed his son for sinners like you and me. Do you have a hard time believing that God loves you? You shouldn't. Christmas is the arrival of our sacrifice. That's what it is. A baby whom God sent, his own son. And Jesus, the righteous one, became our man of sorrow by carrying our guilt. The fathers crushed him and our sin with him. And now we are righteous if we believe. Only if we believe. So let's end with verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he won't stay dead he shall see his offspring. Jesus died without marrying and without having any children. And this says on the cross, he was looking ahead to children, 
that this sacrifice would bring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He knew on the cross that children would be born into the family of God by what he was doing. He looked to children on the cross. Could that be some of you? Could you be some of those children he was looking to? If you trust in him, you are. Trust his sacrifice for you. And then this verse says, he shall prolong his days. (laughs) The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus is alive. He was crushed by God, and this text tells us he will prolong his days. He's alive. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand, which means the work he's doing now, he does with all the power of God to accomplish God's purposes. This man of sorrows is working now to ensure that all our sorrow is redeemed and wiped away. What a sacrifice. What a God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. You did not spare your own son but you gave him up for us, nobodies. We're the ones that owe you the debt, God, and you paid it. You paid it in full. Jesus, thank you that you made yourself a man of sorrows for sorrowful people like us. Help us to trust you. Help us to believe. Would you bring in children for yourself even now? And help us as we worship to the glory of your name. We pray through Jesus. Amen.